you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Albert, and good morning, church family. I'm just going to place this copy of God's Word next to the other here, just so I have a little more room on the uh, podium. I heard you had a great evening last night. How many of you are double dippers? You were out last night and you're here today. Oh, the majority of you. Well, I said to Pastor, you know, it's always a, a little bit of a gamble. Should I use that term? Maybe not. But, you know, when you've been out partying the night before to get out of bed in the morning on a snowy day, I don't know how many of you thought I had that thought myself. Maybe it would be just fine to stay home and be comfortable. But I'm glad you bore the elements and that you're here to encourage one another around the theme of Christmas. Pastor gave me the privilege and pleasure of choosing my text today. And I I wanted to share with you what is, for me, one of the highlights, if not the highlight of the Christmas story. It's the story of the shepherds. Now, I think I identify with the shepherds because I came from an outdoors family, if you know what that means. Not only did we enjoy being outside, but my father, you know, really taught me the joy of gardening. Although I hated it as a kid, I've come to love it as an adult and did the same thing to my own children forced them to be outside with me in the garden, and they hated it. And now they both have green thumbs, and they say to me, well, it's your fault, you know, you were the one that did this to us. But I was raised also with a man who loved to fish and taught me to hunt, and so we ate venison, the deer on Vancouver Island, and all of the big salmon that we could catch. Our freezer was full of it. In those years, it was a way of supplementing income, and I remember as a church planter, the first thing we did in the first house that Donna and I bought in our early 20s was we, we rototilled half of the backyard and put in a huge garden so that we could feed ourselves uh, more economically, and that was a great advantage to us as a family. So when I read about the shepherds in the fields looking after their sheep, I actually don't have a romantic view of that. It's hard work. And in lambing season, this is probably why they were out there with their flocks. Otherwise, there would have been one assigned, unless there was a predator marauder in the area or they had lost sheep to some other cause. But it's likely they were there in the evening because it's lambing season, and some of the ewes would have difficulty and the shepherds would need to assist them in the birth. And it would be a time with the smell of blood and the afterbirth that predators would come and look for easy opportunity. And so there was double cause for them to be present. That's likely the reason they were in the field at that time, which means that probably Christmas didn't happen in the middle of December. That is simply an appointment by a calendar of convenience. And it displaced pagan holidays, as you probably have read the history. But don't we love it? Don't we love the opportunity of coming together around the provision of God in a miraculous way through the birth of his own son? He who knew no sin became sin for us 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the entire intent. And I'm drawing your attention uh, to this account, and there's a story of a pageant. I know I've been uh, present with you when there's been children's pageants, and everybody nudges one another and says, oh, aren't they so cute? I, I don't think cuteness was a factor in the birth of Jesus, to be candid. I'm not opposed to it being so as we retell the story and use children to act it out, but I'm saying that it was a struggling time, it was a difficult time, it was a challenging time, and this was the time when there was Roman oppression in Israel, I need to remind you. Because in the Christmas season, we have a tendency to romanticize the whole thing, to sort of clean it up and, and make it... Um, more winsome and more attractive and more enjoyable, but when you actually think about the parts and the pieces, this was a very desperate time in the life of Israel. They were oppressed and crying out to God. That had been the case. Rome had been over them since the early part of the first century BC. Rome came and established by the time Jesus was born, Israel was actually part of a Roman province. And so their identity had been challenged. Their freedom had been limited. Uh, there were these oppressors everywhere throughout the nation. You, you couldn't go down a street in Jerusalem without seeing a Roman soldier and being reminded you were not free. You were under the control of a conquering nation. And the story of Christmas is the account, though, of God doing something in the whole of this context, suddenly, unexpectedly, and I want to add the word scandalously. Not only was it unexpected and beyond our imagination, but God acts in a completely unpredictable, unexpected way. He enters our world in an unimaginable way. He becomes what we are. I remember Philip Yancey writing about uh, the, the Jesus that I never knew and talks about the incarnation of God. And he says, in my mind, the understanding is, if I go over to my aquarium and I put my hand into the aquarium, I do not comfort my fish, I terrorize them. Now we're going to address this when the angels show up. When God in his holiness and greatness appears, people are usually not comforted, they're terrified. We're unprepared, we're unworthy, we see and feel and know the distance. We'll reference that yet again, but what I'm saying is what God did is the unthinkable. He became a fish in the aquarium to be with the other fish. That's the equivalent here of God in his uncreated greatness was willing to be encased in our humanity. It's called condescension. One of the songs we sang used that term. He condescended. He made himself small, frail. Weak, just as we are, subject to all the things we're subject to, for a purpose that is so counterintuitive, so that in that form, he could die. Taste death on our behalf, and thereby be the sacrifice we needed to atone for our sin. There's a shadow on the, uh, of the cross at Christmas. You cannot see Christmas and, and understand what it is that's happening in, in that stable with this young couple, Mary and Joseph, and miss the fact that not only is God at work, but he's at work in the most deep sense to accomplish our salvation. The first part of that was to be born. 
it, it, it is... Uh, it assaults the senses as we begin to think of it and makes us pause. Because it's something we could never come to God and say, well, I have an idea. I think this is what it is you should do for us. You should become part of your creation and you should willingly sacrifice yourself so that we could be with you. Are you willing? Could you imagine how out of mind that is? There's no way that would occur to us. And yet, here we see in action in this passage, God is about that very thing. It's a good news story. And that is told in the beginning chapter of Luke. And by the time we come to verse 8, we've already read in the first few verses that Mary and Joseph, under Roman law, are required to make this journey from where they're living, likely in the Nazareth area. And they have to do it while she's pregnant and, and ready any moment to deliver, to register and to pay a tax. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like paying taxes, really. I'd rather have more of it in my own pocket until I'm stopped to consider what my taxes do. And I know it is coffee and water cooler conversation among Canadians. We all criticize. Except none of us want to give up everything taxes do for us. Roads and education and the freedom that we have and the advancing, even COVID payments, which are now a huge scandalous topic of conversation as well, right? The overpayments and all that needs to be done. You understand what I'm saying, but the government did try to care for its people. We have to give them that. And pray for them as God instructs us to. But what I'm saying is here they were under the oppression and forced when she was so pregnant to travel and make that trip. And you understand the circumstances. There was no place for her to give birth. So they looked for a quiet, secluded place. They had the child and put him in a feeding trough. Mary came, I believe, prepared with the swaddling cloths, wrapped the baby up, which was the tradition, and there he lay, and this little this young couple, can you imagine? I don't know about you, but I remember when our first child was born, when Jonathan was born. I, I just remember, I just wanted to watch that baby. I didn't need to do anything, I just needed to be there. It was an amazing thing, and in that entire process, I can just imagine here is this young couple with this newborn child that belongs to them. Joseph knows it's not his. Mary fully knows it belongs to God. It is God's intervention. And they're sitting there in those quiet moments with bleeding sheep and neighing animals and finding the only clean place above the ground, a feeding trough, and there's their boy sleeping in quietness after the traumatic entrance of birth wrapped in swaddling clothes. Isn't it amazing? You know that song, Mary, Did You Know? Your baby boy. I want you to read this passage with me. Look at it through the eyes of the shepherds and pause in this Christmas season and reflect on what God has done for you and wants to do through you. So great was his love that he willingly exchanges his glory to become what we are. What happens in verse 8 and through verse 20 has, is a similar surprise. The first visitors to the newborn child are going to be people of the field who were wakened unceremoniously, I might say, by, by God's appearance, the angelic messengers. 
Yeah, there's going to be sheep these shepherd leave behind. It seems to me to fit the narrative like a hand fits a glove. Heaven cannot stay silent and must exalt God and invite others to share what is otherwise an unknown and unobserved event. Who paid attention to Mary and Joseph? The answer was no one. Everyone at that point was looking after themselves, and there was no room, and so they did what an enterprising couple would be. Well, surely you have a corner someplace that's dry. My wife needs it. You can see the pleas. And what, is it, what are they given? They're directed to a stable. That would be their sanctuary. And God sends these, at, at, at land, the, the, these angelic messengers. And it's lambing season. They're in their fields. They've been carrying newborns to their mothers if the mothers abandon them, which sometimes happens within the flock, or they get confused as there's many ewes and little ones running around. And even when a lamb is newborn, it gets its wobbly legs, and within minutes it's scampering around and really figuring out the world it now belongs to. And you can imagine all the chaos that can occur within the field if there's hundreds of ewes giving birth to hundreds of, 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 of little lambs and sometimes twins, even triplets, uh, aren't unusual. You, you can see a little bit of chaos, right, in, in that whole season that's going on. And, and so here, is, here are these shepherds out in the fields while Mary and Joseph are seconded in behind a a stall somewhere of, of a stable of unknown origin. It says simply in the text, and in the same region were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, there's some myths about the Christmas story and about shepherds, and I just want to address them right off the bat. There's three of them. Number one, there are some who have taught that these shepherds are part of a Levitical tribe, meaning that the sheep are going to be taken as yearlings to Jerusalem for sacrifice. It's a lovely thought, but it doesn't belong in the text. You can't find any support of it anywhere within the scripture, nor in the writings of that day. There, there is some indication of that in the Mishnah, the, the writings that come later as an explanation of what different rabbis have taught, but 200 years later, not at this point. So there's no indication that these were part of a sort of a greater movement of people interested in the temple work. Uh, there's no evidence that the lambs would be raised in this area de destined for temple sacrifice. However, it's easy to postulate, to imagine, that maybe some of those lambs might find their way into that, but not by design, not, not, not saying that this was the entire purpose of the flocks of Bethlehem. Uh, secondly, we read in this passage of Scripture that the child was swaddled. And, and some people will say, oh, that's because they had no clothing for the poor infant. They were such a poor family. This was his first experience. Well, that's nonsense. Every child in Israel was swaddled. That was the custom of the culture. A baby was born, you wrapped it, you kept it snuggled and, and tight. Um, you would actually wash it and, and salt the baby, actually. That sounds awful. But when you think about it, no, the saline was good for the skin, and it was a good treatment. It, it wasn't like they were coated in salt. What I'm saying is that that was a treatment that was used within the culture, and it was a good treatment. And wrapped in cloth. Well, I don't know about you, but the little boy I was just talking about, Jonathan, when he was born, 
Well, we sort of swaddled him. You know what receiving blankets are? You know, you have that big square of cloth and you fold one end down and you put the baby in and you wrap one arm in one side and one arm in the other and you fold it over and he's all snugly tight. I can tell you when his hands got loose, that's when chaos began. <laughs> but when you wrapped him up tight, he really enjoyed it. He liked it. Now, I'm not saying you have to do that to every child and if it protests and screams its head off, you shouldn't loose it, but... I am saying it was a custom and a culture, and it's likely if Mary had swaddling cloth, she knew in her pregnancy she should come prepared. She probably had those cloths. So it's not about poverty, and it's not even a foretelling of wrapping the body for burial. There are some that would like to see that illusion. I don't mind that, but it just doesn't belong in the text. So what I'm saying is that these are things that have been added as if they have deep, significant theological meaning. I'm just here to tell you they don't. I'm not saying you shouldn't make a reference. I'm just saying it doesn't belong in the text. What is unusual about the text and the sign is not that the baby was swaddled, although that reference is made. If we get anything out of swaddling, it is that Mary loved her child and the tradition of the day she did for a child what a mother should do. She loved this child, she cared for this child, she swaddled this child, she nursed this child, she would clean this child and bathe it and change its diaper. You know what I'm saying is that what's amazing about this is that God was willing to subject himself to the weakness of the creature at birth. I think, had I been in charge, I would have skipped that part. Why don't you just enter the world as a 20-year-old? You know what I'm saying? With some freedom and choice. No, he was in for the whole of the experience of the frailty of humanity. Amazing, isn't it? Condescended to go through all of that for us. The, the third thing I want to say is, look, the sheep weren't a, a part of a Levitical process. The child wasn't swaddled, swaddled as if it was something unique. And, and further speculation is that the shepherds were a low class of Israel. You know, that somehow these were the wrong side of the tracks kind of people, the, the poor people. Well, if you can't do anything, raise sheep kind of people. But that's patently untrue. And there are some that would quote and say that shepherds were excluded from the temple court. court. I want to tell you that's rubbish. I've taught that myself in the past because I read it in books that I trusted, but I'm here to tell you we need to dispel ourselves of that. That's not true. Shepherds were an important part of Israeli culture. And if we go back, we will see that the patriarchs were all shepherds. Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses himself was a shepherd. He met his wife and married a shepherdess, right? In, in Midianite, you, you know that story. What I'm suggesting is that there's so much within the Old and New Testament that doesn't dishonor shepherds, but it continues to raise the profile of shepherds. David the king was first a shepherd, right? God took him from looking after the flocks of the field to make him, what, the overseer of the flock of his kingdom. And Jesus calls himself what? The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Far from being something that we would look down on as lowly, God himself reaffirms and says, no, these are my people and worthy of this attention. 
We don't need to strengthen it by imagining that they're untrustworthy or that they're a low class or caste of the people. But they were not any less than any other of, God, of the Jewish citizenry of the time. So what do we know for certain from the text? What we know from the text is that God wanted the birth of his son to be known and to be celebrated. It is true that it came, he came silently. It is true that he came around human observation. The birth of Jesus is, is remarkable in the sense that no one knew anything about it apart from Mary and Joseph and a few that were surrounding, you know, Anna in the temple, etc. knew to expect it. A few others had been woken up. John also. You understand what I'm saying is that this... This uniqueness of God entering the world quietly is remarkable, isn't it? Until the birth happens, and in verse 9 of this chapter, uh, eight, or chapter 2 of Luke, you know, we read that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with what? Yeah, they were terrified. They're absolutely terrified. Now, I don't know how you would imagine an angel dropping in one day. We, we do know that an angel visited Mary, and she was stunned and surprised, uh, maybe disquieted. We don't read the same degree of terror because the angel, as he does with the shepherds, calmed her immediately. But I want to suggest to you that Angels drop in on people in, in different ways within the scriptures. One way is they come in unannounced and unrecognized. They did that with Abraham. There were three of them that came, angelic visitors. Maybe you read in the passage in Genesis where, where they show up because they want to tell Abraham what it is that's going on and they don't hide from him what the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be. You know that passage? And they don't really, Abraham doesn't really know. He's got sort of some insight because the conversation goes in directions that wouldn't be common. And he prepares for them a meal, right? And he watches them behave in unique ways. And one of them refers to himself in that passage as the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which means Yahweh. So it is what theologians call a theophany, an appearance of God in human form before his birth. Is it a Christophany? We don't know. We just know it's an appearance of God. But in another passage, chapter 13, where an angel drops in on Manoah, first his wife, and says, you're going to have a child, and the child is going to be unique, she runs home and she tells her husband, and the husband doesn't believe it. He wants to meet the angel. And of course, they go out and they meet the angel, and then he offers them something, and the, sacrifice, or the meal is brought and received as a sacrifice, and in the smoke going up, the angel goes up, and Manoah at the spot says, Oh, we're dead! That's literally what he says. He thinks he's going to die on the spot because he's seen God, God in action. When God comes near, the most normal reaction is fear and terror. We're so unsuited for it. Remember Isaiah in the temple? He only had a vision of God filling the temple. And he was overwhelmed. What is his line? Woe is me, I'm ended. That's what it means, undone. I'm ended. I'm going to die. 
Why? Because I'm a man, I'm a liar. I don't tell the truth. I'm immediately convicted when I see God. I'm a liar. I, I don't tell the truth. And I, everyone else around me is a liar. None of us tells the truth. We're all broken, is what he's saying. I'm just as bad as the rest. He's not expecting to survive the vision. David also has an angelic messenger when he has numbered Israel, something he shouldn't have done as a king, because it means he's counting his resources instead of trusting God. And you know there's a plague that's sent. And then he cries out to God for mercy. You must do something. He says, you need to offer a sacrifice where this angel is standing with a sword and it's Onan's threshing field. He goes in, he buys it. He offers to God the sacrifice. God ends the judgment. But David won't go to the threshing floor. Why? Because he knows there's an angel with a sword and he knows he's on the wrong side of this equation. He's terrified. So what I'm saying to you is if you're sitting around the fire one night having sort of a lovely vacation experience or you're working in the field as these shepherds are and suddenly the roof of the world opens up and an angel drops in, the reasonable response is to kiss the dirt. Right? Reasonable response. They're terrified. I can see them all doing place face plants in front of this angel. And the angel says, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. The news is good. I can see them put their faces up, can't you? I bring you good news, great joy, because unto you is born this day in David's city a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby in swaddling clothes, lying in what? A feeding trough. And before they could respond... Or ask another question. The roof of the world is yet expanded in its openness, and there are so many angels you cannot count them. Heavenly host, praising God, exalting Him. Now, we imagine they're choirs and they're singing. I'm not saying they weren't, but there's no reference to music. There's a reference to loud praising and worship. And because music is part of our worship, it's a reasonable way to marry those two things together. But here are these terrified shepherds. Holiness draws near. They're unprepared. And the angel says, fear not. I bring you good news, great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get to heaven, I hope that's on instant replay somewhere in the library. Don't you want to see this moment? Man, I'd like to live that moment. The thrill, the, the terror, the joyfulness, all the emotions that are wrapped up. I see the shepherds doing what I would do, falling on my face, face down, as the glory of God settles on us. And then the angel dispels us, don't be afraid. I'm not here to condemn, I'm not here to judge, I'm not here to assess, I'm not here to lecture, I'm not here to reprove you i'm here to bring you good news can you imagine as soon as that is delivered what happens to the angel or i mean what happens to the shepherds the stress hormones stop pumping 
the heart starts to settle a little bit, right? Maybe you're suddenly aware of what's around you all over again because at that moment there's only two responses and they're emotional, they're not logical. You either run or you fight, right? Flight or fright. And suddenly these fear-filled men regain their composure, starts to settle. I, I can imagine and identify with the anxiety and the tension and, and start to feel it ease out of my body. Because the news is so good and so joyful, for unto you is born today in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, how do you think they would have understand this news? Well, I want to tell you at the outset, it doesn't really matter. But they're people of their day, so when an angel drops in to a, an oppressed people under the law of Rome, hating all this paganism, hating all it is that Rome is insisting on, hating the imposition of the new language, let alone paying taxes to a foreign king, let alone not having the freedom of all the things they've used to have, even movement within the country is somewhat curtailed. I think if they hear there's news of a savior, it's pretty reasonable to conclude, oh, someone is going to set us free from that. Now, they missed it by a mile if that was their thinking, right? It'd be reasonable. It should be the first thing that dances in our brain. Someone's going to get me out of this jam. Oh, no, it's, it's bigger. It's better than what they can imagine. But here, I want you to understand, the angels don't correct them. And there's no one here that sits down and instructs them in the moment. They're simply told what God is doing. But they're also invited to be his witnesses. To check it out. Why am I laboring this? Because I want to tell you when you first follow Christ, you won't know everything you need to know. You'll just know enough. Enough to what? Enough to follow, enough to believe, enough to agree that you need him, enough to know that he alone can create the change within your life. But you're not going to understand everything within the covenants, old and new. You'll probably know very little. And you may have some resistance even to the idea of having to trust God and not work it out for yourself. It might well be that you have even had other religious experiences that are standing in the way of you completely trusting. But you know enough to want to know more. You won't know enough to want to check it out. And suddenly, as quickly as it began, the event ended. Can you see that in your mind's eye? They all left. And there was silence again, maybe crickets, or cicadas, or the bleeding of lambs. No angels, no praising, no light. Do you ever wonder if in those moments they wondered if what they had seen actually happened? Was it all sort of mass hysteria? They all imagined the same thing at the same time? Highly unlikely. 
But you have this suddenness, there is the angel, this multitude of hosts, and they're glorifying God. And then just as suddenly it says, the angels went away to heaven. I don't know how that happens. I'm actually not imagining that they sort of went up into the air and got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. It's possible. I'm imagining that as suddenly as they came, they left. Because God's heaven isn't far away, it's near us, right? It's in him that we live and move and have our being. He sustains all things by his power. He's present in all places. There's nothing that surprises him. There's nothing he doesn't know. So in my mind, it's sort of blip and they're gone. They blink out. And there they are, themselves with their sheep gone sometimes I feel that about events in my life I think it's over too soon have you have you had that with a with a sunset that's absolutely glorious the colors are just dancing in the sky and you say to everyone who's within calling distance come now because you know it won't last there are so many things in life that I just think I'd like it to last a little longer thank you very much last night's over isn't it You've all had the experience, but it's just a memory. It's done. I think in this context, all of that celebration is over and they're moving on into the next thing. But as they look at one another, there's not a doubt in their mind that they have all witnessed exactly what they did. And they were all of the same mind. Because it says, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Now, they might have had misunderstandings swirling in their heads about the meaning of Savior. But they certainly know enough that God had given them an invitation and they were smart enough to check it out. And what did they find? A couple. Uh, we would learn that Joseph was a carpenter. We would learn not much about Mary, actually, her background in life. And they had a little babe in a feeding trough in front of them. That was what was unique. So here's the nativity scene. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger. What a strange sign. Can you imagine it? It's so ironic. A savior is born for you. Where will you find him? Not in Herod's palace. Not in the temple courts. Not in some synagogue. Not amongst those who are scholarly. Not amongst the nobility. You're going to find him in a feeding trough. Available to all of us. Common man with a very uncommon birth experience. I don't know about you, but my parents often said to me, close the door, were you born in a barn? Right? There were rules and manners, keep the heat in, keep the critters out. Here is Jesus, no heat, all the critters, in a stable. Born for us. Now, what are they going to look for? It doesn't make any sense if they go and look for a swaddled child. Because every newborn in that city would be swaddled. But suddenly when you add it, a swaddled newborn, 
lying in a feeding trough. Now you have the detective sleuthing at work. What would they do? They would go into the village and say, any babies in stables tonight? Maybe the first place, no. Maybe the second place, oh, I heard a, a, I heard a mewling infant over that way. What am I saying? They would know where the stables were. They would know where the animals were. They, they were shepherds. They would know all of that in Bethlehem. So they went to the place it would be found, and likely they were grouped somewhere. Stalls, stables, pens, all for sheep. And they would be looking. They would be asking. And then they would be seeing Mary and Joseph and the baby in a feeding trough. This is the child. Now, what happened to Mary and Joseph in this? I imagine one maybe nudged the other, but maybe not, because it says that Mary pondered all of these things and held them in her heart. But the thing that was clear is they weren't alone. They weren't the only ones who knew what this child was. God had already made it known and sent a group to witness it. It would be repeated in Nazareth when the child was, what, maybe two? that the wise men would come and find him in the house and bring him gifts. But here, these are the first visitors whom God has awoken and said, pay attention, I'm doing something. And they went to check it out. So friends, what I'm asking for at, at this juncture, at that this sign is that you yourself would be willing to check out what it is that God has done. How would the shepherds have found him? By doing the search. They had enough to know which would be the one. There wouldn't be a multiplicity of babies laying in feed troughs. Unique, unusual, this is the one. And they found him. And then it says within the scripture, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. God said, he's going to be the savior. What does that mean? I don't know. Reasonable answer, reasonable response. But all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. What on earth is God up to? You can imagine the conversations of everyone who knew this and everyone who had been repeated and repeated and repeated the story. Pondering, Mary pondering all these things. And what did the shepherds do? Well, they went back to the work they needed to do, but they were glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. Their lives were forever marked by the experience of knowing that God was at work and invited them into it. This is what I want you to do this Christmas. Go look in the manger. Go see what God is doing and visit that scene in your own mind as you read this passage of Scripture. How remarkable, how marvelous, how unexpected, how scandalous that God sent His only Son to be born in a stable and put in a feeding trough so that we could become part of His forever family. Amazing. Just be amazed again. And then say in candor, in openness, in honesty to God, I don't know everything I should know, but I know enough to believe what you've done. 
I'm so grateful. And then a third piece. Make it known. Tell your families, your co-workers, the people you live, work, and play with what's happened in your life. I'm not talking about being weirdly religious. I'm talking about asking God to help you see opportunities and take them. Well, the shepherds did. You'll never guess what happened to me. Imagine starting a conversation on Monday saying, I had the most amazing experience on Saturday night. Well, what was it? We had people singing songs in all of their languages. It was a riot. Someone told me there was an 84-year-old English singer among you. Right? Yeah, you're impressed by that. I'm impressed by that. I can't sing at 64, let alone 84. You know what I'm saying. So grateful to be part of that. That would be a door opener in conversation. Well, what was that all about? Tell me more. You don't have to tell everything at the start. You can just say, an amazing evening we had. Yeah, we do that periodically. Every interest in joining us? Suddenly, you've offered an invitation for someone to join you to hear Pastor Ronald and maybe learn more about Jesus. They could turn you down, but they could also say yes. Shepherds were amazed. People who listened to them thought, what is going on? What is God doing? You know, we can be those who want to share their stories with people around them. We can. God invites us into his story and says, why don't you share my story? You don't have to share all of your own, but why don't you share my story? That I was so in love with this mess of humanity, I wasn't willing for heaven to be without them. So I became what they are, so they could be with me forever. The gospel is good news. Check it out. Help others check it out, too. Father, we thank you today for all that you've taught us in this passage, all that you've reminded us, all that you've brought to the forefront. Thank you for the blessings of this season. Help us to strip away the romanticism of it, not to ruin it and not to say it's wrong, but to say, I really want to see what the crux of this is about. I want to see you with fresh eyes. Open the eyes of my heart that I might know you and follow you and make you known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.